Amen. Well, good morning. This week we are in week three of a four-week series on our purpose as a church, and our purpose is to love Jesus, to know truth, to serve others, and to reach people. So this morning we're talking about serving others, and with each call I've talked about an identity that goes along with that call. So with the call to love Jesus supremely, it's a call to be worshipers. All people are worshipers. We're called to worship Jesus Christ. And with knowing truth, we're called to be disciples because to be a disciple is to be a learner, a lifelong learner. And this morning we're looking at serving others. So obviously we're called to be servants, but even more than that, as the church, we're called to be family. The main metaphor or image for the church in the New Testament is that of family. Just think about how many times we hear the word brothers, every letter, brothers, brothers. And actually the term means from the same womb. It's really siblings. And so brothers and sisters, it's a family. God is our father and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're called to be about serving one another. One of my favorites, Galatians 5, brothers and sisters, you are called to be free, but don't use your freedom for yourself. Rather, through love, serve one another. Serve one another humbly in love. And as we saw last week, the ascended Lord, the victorious Christ has ascended and he's given gifts. So if you're a believer, you have received a gift. Remember Ephesians 4, 7, a grace has been given to each of us. Or in Ephesians 4, 12, pastors and teachers are called to equip the people of God, the saints for works of service. So you have a grace And you have this work of service. And our goal as a church leadership is to help you do that. And then in that passage, if you were here last week in Ephesians 4, 16, he ends by saying that the body will only grow as each part does its work. So each of us has a gift, a grace of some sort. And the intention of God Almighty is that you use that for the upbuilding of the church. In other words, to serve one another. See this all over the place. 1 Peter 4, 10, each of you, should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Romans 12, 4. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given each of us. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given. You have some gift. And then it says for the common good, for the upbuilding of the body, you've been gifted and you've been gifted with the intention of serving the body so that it will be matured and and built up. So we're called to be servants. We're called to be servants first and foremost, because we serve the ultimate servant, the servant king that is Jesus Christ. That's really what it means to be like Jesus. We talk a lot, don't we, about being like Christ, growing in Christ's likeness. One of the main things Christ was about was service. So I want us to spend a little time this morning in John chapter 13. I think it's one of the richest passages in the Gospels and one that I refer to regularly. And we're going to look at the first 17 verses. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to John 13, verses 1 to 17. Hear the word of the Lord. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the ends. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who had said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. First notice the importance here. In these first few verses, we see just how important this context is where we find Jesus doing this remarkable act. This was the time of Passover. This was the Thursday night of Jesus' final week, which is why he says, my time to depart, my hour to depart has come, meaning he's going to the cross. This is part of what we call the farewell discourse. In other words, this is Jesus' goodbye speech. Within 24 hours of these events, he would die and he knows it. And so he gathers his disciples, those who would carry on the mission and message of Christ, and he gathers them in a room and he knows his, his hours are limited. What will he do? What message will he leave? Just think, if you knew that your time was coming to an end and you gathered your family or your friends together, the thing, the words you were going to do in that moment are of vital importance. And this is Jesus on his way out. And what does he do? Verse four. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This was all the custom, of course. Usually there was a domestic slave that would come in and do this, but they would come and they weren't quite as sophisticated as us in terms of eating. There was no tables and chairs. They did a little bit different. So they would lean over on their left arm and their feet would be outside of the table and they would eat with their right hand. My bag just aches thinking about it, but it was what they did. And so they're leaning over and the feet are out, right? Because no one wants a side of toe jam with their bread and wine or with their bread and juice, we're Baptists. So the feet would be out. 
You want, you want your feet away because at that time they didn't have socks, they didn't have shoes, they had sandals that would often not cover the whole of the feet. And so one, let's just be honest, man feet are gross. So you got man feet, but on top of that, you got man feet covered in mud and dust and dirt. And on top of that, there wasn't really a clean sanitation system. And so you had animals all over the place just doing their business all over the ground and you had people walking through it. So you have man feet covered in dirt and covered in animal excrement. It's nasty. Yet, Jesus gets up. For whatever reason, there is no household slave and Jesus gets up. And he takes off his outer clothing and he puts on a towel. He gets some water. This was something that the meanest slave would do. This was a task reserved for the lowest class of society. This was for Gentile slaves. Jews wouldn't let Jews wash their feet. Hebrew slaves couldn't wash feet. It was above them. There's a story one time in Jewish tradition of a rabbi coming home and his his mother wanted to honor him wanted to wash his feet, and he refused and said, no, you're above this. And here you have the Messiah, the king of Israel, stooping down and washing man feet covered in animal excrements. He's on his way to the cross, and one of his last great acts is an act of humiliating service, the task of a slave the son of God, the king of kings, the one who had been in fellowship with the father and the spirit from all eternity, the all-powerful one, puts on a towel, wraps it around his waist. He assumes the form of a slave for the good of others. He serves them. It had to be awkward. The air had to be thick. I mean, this is just something that would be inappropriate. It'd be like the president taking out your trash the queen doing your dishes, but a thousand times more inappropriate. This is the Lord of Lords. This is the one of whom Colossians 1 says that all things were made by him and for him. And here he is stooping down, washing the feet of his disciples. It's an incredible scene. This is what he wants his disciples to remember. I wonder what he's thinking as he's washing these nasty feet. He's probably praying. Father, strengthen these feet. They're going to need it to stand against false teaching. Father, help these feet to stand against error and strengthen my church. Father, give these feet perseverance as they will receive the very same nails that mine will. Amazing. And then we have an objection, and surprise, surprise, it's Peter. Look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, and by the way, you know Peter had the nastiest feet of all, right? Big old size 13, ingrown toenails and bunions. He comes to Peter, and Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew he was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not every one of you. 
So the disciples are probably extremely embarrassed. They're probably thinking, oh no, why didn't we get up and do this? Here he is washing our feet. And so they're all silent except for Peter. (laughs) Peter had to object. He only opens his mouth to take one foot out and put the other one in. He's humble enough to object to Jesus washing his feet. He's not humble enough not to tell his Lord what he can and cannot do. And he says, this is not how it works. Are you going to wash my feet? No. I work for you. And Jesus says, Peter, you don't understand. But afterward, that is after the cross, you'll understand what this is about. Because this, this humble act of service actually is pointing forward to the ultimate act of service. And that is the cross of Christ. This physical cleansing is symbolic of spiritual cleansing. Look again at verse 8 there in the second half. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Unless one is washed by Jesus, he or she can have no part with him. Our problem is not dirt. Our problem is not feet, but sin. And only in Christ can we find cleansing. That's the way 1 John 1 puts it. 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So Peter, you don't understand, but you will, and you need cleansing. You need my cleansing. And he says, changes his tune. So look at verse 9. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, my hands and head. Do it all. I'd like to rethink my response. May I please remove my foot from my mouth? Once again, that was not my final answer. See, Peter was expecting a different sort of kingdom. Peter's expectations, along with his disciples, were thinking of a militaristic Messiah who would come and rule over their enemies, and they would be served. They wouldn't be the ones serving. He didn't realize that the kingdom of Christ is an upside-down kingdom. It's a counterintuitive kingdom. He could not envision a Messiah performing the tasks of a slave, much less be crucified, which is why he didn't understand the cross. But this king's bringing a different kind of kingdom. He'll have a crown all right, but it won't be of gold and jewels. It'll be made of thorns. Luke 17, Jesus says, my kingdom is not coming with something that can be observed. John 18, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. His rule is going to manifest itself in the opposite way that the disciples expected. His rule is counter-cultural. His victory comes through defeat. His kingdom is where the first or the last, the last or first. Greatness comes from serving. Saving your life is actually when you lose your life for his sake. We're not called to crucify our enemies. We're called to take up our own cross and deny self and love our enemies. Peter didn't get it, at least at first. But we can't be hard on Peter. The other disciples didn't get it either. Keep your finger in John and flip over to Mark 10. They made the same mistake. They were looking for a physical kingdom where they would be on top next to their militaristic Messiah. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, that's Jesus, teacher. They said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. (laughs) What do you want from me to do for you? He asked. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Again, they're thinking of a military victory. And the truth of it is, is Jesus did enter his glory. But they wouldn't want to be at his right and his left when he would enter the kind of glory he would enter. Verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. 
Jesus said, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will. Drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left, it's not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. (laughs) Would y'all quit? Would y'all quit? I'm going to be first. This is for me. Buzz off. Keep your mouth shut. Verse 42, teaching opportunity. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, that is unbelievers, pagans, they lord it over the people underneath them. And their high officials, their leaders, they exercise authority over them. Key words in verse 43, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For, because, here's the reason, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. No one in this conversation could envision greatness and slavery together. Here's the way John Stott puts it. He says, the disciples and Jesus speak a different language, breathe a different spirit and express a different ambition. James and John want to sit on thrones in power and glory. Jesus knows that he must hang on a cross in weakness and shame. The antithesis is total. Jesus brings an upside down kingdom. Just think about the Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. They don't say, blessed are the winners, blessed are the powerful, blessed are the successful, blessed are the affluent. No, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. You see, it's only in the kingdom of Christ that we descend into greatness. Greatness is about serving others. And Jesus wants his disciples to know that with this very tangible act of washing their feet. Even Judas, who he knew would betray his Lord with a kiss, and he washes his feet. I wonder what he was thinking. I don't think it was anger. I think it was probably sadness and brokenness. And what unfathomable love we see displayed here by our King. What magnificent forbearance. Jesus calls us to love our enemies, and right here we see him practicing exactly what he preaches. And why is he doing this? Why does he do this? Verse 12 tells us, John 13, 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And now that I... Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. 
Here's the reason for this. Jesus has left us an example. He's left us a pattern, a lifestyle of humble service, foot washers. Now, there's some traditions that say it's an ordinance that the church ought to practice. So we've got baptism, we've got the Lord's Supper, and we've got foot washing. I think that actually misses the point. We have no need in today's culture of washing our feet before we come to our meal, except maybe a few of your middle school boys. But for the rest of us, we've got socks and shoes, and we don't need it. The point here is humble service. The heart of the command here is a humble, servant-like attitude towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. The call to serve others, to put others first, to give of self for the good of others. I think the Apostle Paul actually is thinking of John 13 when he writes Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 says this. Let me read verse 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That, I think, is one of the most challenging passages in the whole Bible. A life of serving others. He says, do nothing out of self-centeredness. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Older translations say, vain glory. Glory that is empty. It's this worldly attitude that loves the outward appearance and loves to promote self. Loves to show out. It's it's when image is everything. Any glory that's focused on us and not the Lord is ultimately vain. He says, do nothing out of vain glory. And that's hard today, right? Because we live in the age of the selfie, the age of fake book, the age where we put all of our best images forward and hide all of our worst. I think probably 90% of what's posted on social media is probably motivated out of vainglory. <laughs> Selfish ambition. The word here says, do nothing. Don't be about yourself in any area of your life. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, which is incredibly hard. Foot washing requires death to self and death to our ego and death to our agenda. Don't seek to be served, but to serve. That's the message here. And it's difficult for a couple of reasons. It's difficult because we've got an external challenge and an internal challenge. Externally, again, we live in the age of the selfie. Everything in our culture says you are king and you deserve to be prime. BK culture, right? Burger King, have it your way. So the air we breathe is one that promotes self-centeredness, and that's a problem when we're all promoting self-centeredness, right? Because we're all competing. The problem is I want to be at the center of the universe, and the challenge is so do you. So we have this culture that's telling us to be first and be about us. Then we have the inward problem. We have the internal challenge because really sin at its very core is just self-centeredness. The DNA of sin is self-centeredness. So why Augustine, again, from hippo, not the hippo, said that he describes sin as being curved in on ourselves. That's a really good definition of sin. Being, instead of looking up to God and looking out to our neighbor in love, we are curved in on ourselves. Of course, that's not Augustine. That's the prophet Isaiah, right? Isaiah 53, 6, all we have gone astray. Each one is turned to his own way. So we are selfish as sinful people. Spurgeon said that Mr. Self is our worst enemy as a Christian. So we have the culture and we have ourselves, fallen self, saying this world exists to serve me. And I think we get that, right? Anytime we walk into a new room, we're thinking about who first. Anytime we look at a group photo, where are our eyes going first? 
We get it. We're looking at us. How do I look in this photo? So we get that, and we get that if you've had kids, right? Because the infant demands service every three hours, or there will be red-faced, back-arching demands of it. No infant is thinking, how can I serve my mommy tonight? (laughs) You don't have to teach toddlers to be selfish. You don't have to teach them. It comes naturally in this fall. We do have to teach them to be selfless. Their first words are some variation of mine, me, my turn, me do it. (laughs) It is just very natural. One of my favorite illustrations of this is when Alicia and I had, I think we had two, but our first our first child was uh, about two, and we lived in Houston at the time, and we went in for the well visit, and the doctor gave us some paperwork for toddlerhood. Here is some paperwork to prepare you for toddlerhood. Let me share a little bit about it. As I read this, it's directed to toddlers, but probably applies to most of us in some way or another. Here is what parents of toddlers should expect. Again, this is not a joke. This is from our family doctor. Gets upset and impatient easily. Shows anger, this is under emotional development, shows anger by crying or striking out. Gets frustrated when not understood, here's a good one, wants own way. May assert self by saying no. Goes back to acting like a baby at times. Is upset when daily routine changes. That applies to many of you. (laughs) Has sharp mood changes. And then there's a section for social development. And among other things, it says, does not share. Claims everything is mine. May scratch, hide, hit, bite, and push other children. Then under mental development, it says, likes to do it myself. Cannot be reasoned with much of the time. (laughs) So we live in this self-centered world. And again, part of our sin nature is to be concerned first and foremost to the self. And so it's hard for us to serve others. It goes against the grain of our fallen nature to want to serve others because we're so self-consumed. Me, myself, and I, mine, mine, mine. We're like those pesky seagulls on Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. We went to Port A last year, maybe a year and a half ago, and one of the highlights of the trip was we had an all-out water gun war with these viciously self-centered seagulls. They were after our Fritos, and we lost, had to report, we lost the war. But that's who we are, and that's why it's hard. We've got an external enemy, an internal enemy. We want self-exhausted. We want self-served. We don't want to serve others. So this is a hard call here, but the call is that we have the provision to do it in the cross of Christ and this act of service. And then here in Philippians 2, he actually points to Christ. So let me read again, Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. And here's how he motivates us. How can we do this? This is such a hard call. How? Verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus had. How can you do it? Adopt the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? Verse 6. Who? Being in very nature God, he had every right. He had every prerogative. How did he use it? Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Here's where I think the Apostle Paul's thinking of John 13. He takes on the form of a slave. 
being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So he says, basically serve others because that's what Jesus was about. Same thing we saw in Mark 10. Don't be about yourselves. Be a servant of all for the son of man, Jesus says, did not come to be served, but to serve. He is the power and he is the paradigm for the call to serve others. Points to Jesus who gave himself for our good. And in doing this, he not only saved us, he left us an example. So both John 13, Philippians 2, they challenge us to serve others, to live selflessly because Jesus did that, showed us what it means. And what we're really talking about here is love, right? Because love in the Bible is not merely an emotion. It is an act. It's a verb. And so the call to serve others is the same biblically as the call to love others. And that's why in John 13, there at the end, 34 and 35, he says, a new command I give you, Love one another as I have loved you. How has he loved them? He had just shown them. He performed the functions of a slave for their good, which pointed forward to the cross. He gave of self for their good. And he calls it love. It's the new command. And then in verse 35, he says, By this, the whole world will know that you are my disciples by how you sacrificially love one another. The world will know. The world should look at our congregation and be struck by how well we love one another. That's what Jesus says. Again, John 13, 35, it's countercultural. Your peers and your colleagues and your neighbors and your family ought to see how well we love one another and be struck by it. Again, what did Jesus say to his disciples? The, the Gentiles, the pagans live this way, not so among you. It should be different. These are our marching orders, to serve one another. This is literally what we were made for. The life worth living is the life that pours itself out for the good of others. Again, because we serve a Savior who poured his life out for the good of others. This is the path to blessing. Jesus says, if you know these things, you're blessed. You will be blessed if you do them. The path to fulfillment, the path to the good life. There's an irony here in that when we serve we're served. And you all know this. When you go and serve others, ultimately, and at the end of the day, you get served. When you give, at the end of the day, you get. Because self-giving service is what we're made for. And we have the power and we have the pattern through the cross. So the question then, put feet on the ground, is, is how are you serving? Another way to put it is, is what's your gift and how are you using it? Again, if you're a believer, Jesus, through the Spirit, has gifted you in some way. There's a lot of spiritual gift inventories. I'm actually not a big fan of the inventories that people make up. I think the best way to find your gift is just to jump in. Jump in, and usually the thing that you see the Lord using or that you're good at or that you enjoy, that's usually what your gift is. And so what are you doing? You've been gifted. What are you doing to use that gift for the upbuilding of the body? I want to mention just a few opportunities here at Southside. We've got a lot of kiddos in Southside, which provides a lot of opportunities. And I want to see our ministries with kids flourish, not survive. I want to see them flourish. And so there's some opportunities here. We have Sunday morning teachers. 
opportunities for preschool and for elementary. And let me just tell you, some of you are like, oh, no, no, I couldn't teach. That's not for me. We use this curriculum that Lifeway puts out called the Gospel Project. It is fantastic. You will benefit, again, as much as the kids will because you will learn the Bible. This curriculum is so good. The other thing about it is it actually requires, it doesn't require a ton of prep. They do a really good job, and along with Charcy and Ashley, do a really good job of, of setting you up to teach but the content is there, and they've done a good job of serving busy teachers. We all know you're busy. The content is great. The preparation is great. So if you're willing, consider it. Don't be intimidated by it. Just jump in. Give it a try. Sunday morning teachers, preschool, elementary. And again, just what an opportunity. You know, a lot of, a lot of us struggle with evangelism. I love kids' ministry because it's one of the easiest ways to do evangelism. Most of the children back there have not yet pre- professed faith. So you get to be one of those that presses the gospel on children and also doing so, shaping them and forming for them their first experiences with the family of God. Need a teacher for four-year-olds. We need a helper with five-year-olds. Helpers come in rooms and really just there to help the teacher, help with crafts or help with snacks or help with restroom breaks. We have nursery needs more every month, it seems like. I would love to see our current nursery workers double. I would love to see it double in the next year. So maybe get on a rotation for 9.30 or 11. Wednesday nights, we have opportunities for teachers, classroom helpers. One class right now has about 22 kids. We need some help. We need a new class there. VBS is coming up, second week of June. Maybe you're going to take some time off and serve in VBS. If you're interested in any of these, contact Ashley or Charcy. Their info's in the bulletin. Good with tech, jump on our tech team. If you're warm and friendly, maybe jump on the greeting team with the kids or with the normal greeters. What I'd like to see is that when we have guests, we have enough greeters that we can actually escort new families to their place. And so that would require a depth of greeter team, but we want you to be warm and friendly. If you walk around with a scowl on your face, maybe not the place you ought to serve. Maybe not your, maybe not your gift. This week, my four-year-old diva daughter came home from preschool. A teacher is really sweet. We know that. But she said... This certain teacher is not hers, not her main teacher. This teacher is the rudest. She has bad words in her throat. And I don't like she's face. It looks like an owl. (laughs) If that describes you, we'll find another place. Maybe not the greeting team. Maybe tech team. Maybe it's worship. I don't know. What is your next step? That's the question. What's your next step? It may be I'm already doing too much and I need to say no to something so I can do something else better. It may be a next step here. It may be a next step that's totally unrelated to what we do on Sundays and Wednesdays, but it may be a first next step, and that's the question. Are you serving others? What are you doing to follow your Lord and serving others? Giving, not getting, that's what we were made for. By the way, G.K. Chesterton put it, how much larger your life would be if you became smaller in it? There's so much truth in that. We have the supreme example and the power to be servants in a unique way because of Christ. His sacrificial love should propel us to humbly serve one another. The way of Jesus is the way of death to ego and death to self and serving one another. King Jesus says, I've given you an example that you should do to others as I have done for you.